National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. On October 11, 2022, the Church recognized the 60th anniversary of the opening of the Second Vatican Council by Pope John XXIII. To commemorate the Council and examine the mark it continues to have on the Church these 60 years later, the National Catholic Register published a Symposium of Voices. Senior editor Jonathan Liedel helped organize this effort, and theologian Larry Chapp contributed to the special edition. Both join us today to discuss Vatican II's continued relevance in this moment, as well as its significance for the future of the Church. I'm Jeanette Mello, Editor-in-Chief and Executive Director of the National Catholic Register and your host here on Register Radio. As I said, we're looking at Vatican II at 60. So let's start with a few fast facts. The Council began October 11, 1962. It was convoked by John XXIII and was concluded by Paul VI on December 8, 1965. The gathering produced four constitutions, three declarations, nine decrees, and many years of debate. More than 2,000 bishops attended the four sessions and thousands of advisors or observers, both lay and religious, were present, including Carl Wartia, who was the future Pope John Paul II, and Joseph Ratzinger, the future Pope Benedict XVI. In 2015, the Register looked at the documents of the Council in a special symposium, and now we've looked at the relevance of the Council today. Jonathan Liedel led this effort for the Register, and Jonathan is with us now. He's a graduate of Notre Dame. He holds an MA in Catholic Studies from the University of St. Thomas and is currently completing an, an MA in Theology from St. Paul's Seminary in Minnesota as well. So Jonathan, so grateful for the work that you did for the Register in putting together this special coverage. And now we turn to what has really been a, quite a debate um, in, in recent years over Vatican II. You'd think maybe things would subside by now. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> when St. Saint, now Saint, right, John Twenty-Third opened the Second Vatican Council uh, on that October day in 1962, he expressed a confident trust that, and I quote, in the light of this council, the world would gain in spiritual riches and be enabled, quote again, to face the future without fear. So, you know, we know that the Vatican II has had an unquestionable um, impact on the church over these years. Um, yet sometimes when you look at the debates that still go on today, you kind of wonder how do, how do you even define its impact, right? Mm. Um, so yeah, today, absolutely. in this moment, how do you describe um, this milestone and the, and the tone and the atmosphere of, of this moment? Yeah, it's funny in your introduction, Jeanette, you mentioned the debates that kind of sprung up uh, about the Second Vatican Council and its its meaning, especially in the decades afterward. Uh, and it seems like many of those debates, um, which may have seemed settled for decades, are kind of upon us again. So I think when both our contributors to the symposium on Vatican II's 60th anniversary, but also the wider uh, kind of Catholic um, audience and um, commentariat out there, it seems like this anniversary of, of Vatican II kind of brings with it maybe a little more uncertainty uh, about what its legacy is, uh, maybe a little more contention and even angst 
um, than we've seen in, in years past. And I think, you know, just to compare, um, you know, I wasn't uh, I wasn't working with the register back in 2015 when we did that symposium. But just looking back on it, it was a very kind of tranquil uh, symposium, right? It, the the contributors were breaking down documents from the council and just talking about their impact on them. And this year, I think a lot of our contributors really we're aware of um, that that kind of that legacy is is uncertain and things seem a little unstable right now. And so they want to draw attention to that. Um, so a couple pieces that, that spring to mind, Matthew Levering, uh, who's the chair of theology at Mundelein Seminary, you know, he, he wrote a piece, uh, Vatican II at 60, The Crucial Question, and just really, um, you know, drawing attention to uh, that we, in order to interpret Vatican II and receive it fruitfully, we have to view it, right, through a Christocentric perspective. We can't view it um, as a kind of, you know, political power move about rearranging uh, the structures of the church. Um, and, you know, he notes that those were some of the thoughts back in the day, uh, you know, in those decades after the council, um, but they seem to be resurgent now. Um, so That's I think, right. yeah, it's it's, it's Jonathan, kind of, I'll jump in for a second because sure. one of the lines that he, you know, he calls this the crucial question, and um, he's, he mm -hmm. says that question is whether Vatican II was about worldly power or Christ's power, and obviously he mm -hmm. believes it is was indeed about Christ's power, but that's a stark way of putting it, you know, um, in, in many questions, how has worldly power crept in to the church these days. So very powerful piece there by by um, Mr. Levering. Absolutely, and I feel like it's it's something that in 2015 we, we didn't necessarily maybe need to ask ourselves because it seemed clear, right, that Vatican II is not about worldly power. It's not about, you know, how can we simply update the church to make it more relevant uh, and worldly, right? But how can we take that ever ancient, ever new faith, but in a way that's attractive to people? And of, of course, we, we have to look at the historical reasons for that. I mean, the, the pontificates of John Paul II and uh, Benedict XVI, both who attended uh, the council, um, they really took to the task of of laying out the council's teaching to the church um, as a continuum, right, of a hermeneutic, mm -hmm. of a continuity, as, as Pope uh, Benedict would always say. And, and so they did a lot of work to, to bring those teachings um, into the life of the church. Uh, Francis has, has a different style, and he ha himself has said that the legacy of Vatican II is unfulfilled. The work of Vatican II mm -hmm. is unfulfilled. What, what do we know, I mean, do we know what he means by that? I think what I would, it, this seems to be Pope Francis's style in general, right? He's always talking about encounter and, and dialogue, and I think you're right how you laid it out. I mean, John Paul II, uh, you know, we can imagine was chosen by uh, his fellow cardinals precisely um, at, a, at a difficult time in the church where it was kind of an open question of what Vatican II meant for the church going forward. And so his long pontificate and then Benedict the Sixteenth was really about establishing um, like an authoritative interpretation of it. And Francis's style, that style of kind of wider engagement um, that we see, seems to be leading him to to bring voices back into the conversation that maybe were sort of recognized previously um, as not consistent with with how the the, the popes were, were viewing the council and its significance and its impact so at the very least we we know we know that much right right that the pope 
seems to be motivated by including uh, people in the conversation. We don't know. I, I think it's difficult to say if that means he rejects, um, you know, what John Paul II and Benedict XVI have laid out before him. But there certainly is a sense um, in, in which, yeah, voices that, or even not just voices, but even entire ways of thinking about the council uh, that previously kind of were seen to be unfruitful and went out of favor are resurfacing. We had on the, the anniversary of the council's opening back on, on Tuesday, October 11th, the Synod for Bishops, uh, or Synod of Bishops, which is leading, you know, the initiative, the Synod of Synodality, they they released a kind of statement talking about the significance of Vatican II, and they, they characterized their mission as carrying out the spirit of Vatican II, which of course is a very, very loaded uh, statement, uh, a loaded way of interpreting the council. So the council you don't look at the documents and what was actually said, but you you try to discern sort of like the the spirit of it, right? This need to be ever changing and ever adapting to the modern world. Um, you know, the theologian Massimo Fagioli pointed that out and said, "Hey, this is this is significant. We're seeing sort of the re- rehabilitation of a view that was closed down um, in previous decades." So right, and yeah, that I, can be also yeah. characterized, Jonathan. One of the uh, synod of of uh, and synodality, one recent tweet and, and a poster that uh, uh, that was tweeted out, or a picture that was tweeted out, of um, of people hand in hand in front of a church with one a woman um, wearing priestly vestments and another with a rainbow flag, and you know that that image itself is um, is uh, kind of promoted as as church um, is. Mm-hmm is a visible um, picture of, of what's at play here and what is being mm-hmm. promoted again and, and was um, at, at one time off the table, you know? I mean, the church has clarified exactly. these issues, <laughs> um, but I mean, they're Pope still... Well, I mean, Pope Francis himself has has affirmed what John Paul II said in terms of the church's ability to ordain women. It's an impossibility. And so, you know, Father D'Souza, Father Raymond D'Souza, a regular register contributor, you know, he wrote a piece for the symposium, uh, kind of a play off the famous movie title called Backwardist to the Future. And he was getting at, you know, the Pope has criticized um, those who he says display a kind of backwardist mentality, like wanting to go back in time to a bygone era and not accepting, um, you know, the reforms of the church and, and the true sense in which the church does need to um, change to remain the same, which is, you know, a principle of uh, St. John Henry Newman and his development of doctrine. But Father D'Souza points out, you know, that this backwardism, um, you know, also can describe some of these voices uh, and these these really these agitations we're seeing to go back to the 1970s um, and and to revisit a lot of whether it's women's ordination, whether it's things related to human sexuality, whether it's you know whether the church is is uh, you know a democracy where everything is decided by vote or whether we have a deposit of faith right that that it's the bishop's job to to guide us through um, so all these questions are are kind of in a way at least uh, they're I wouldn't say they're back on the table in that like you know that that real change will actually happen to them but happen because of them but they're at least in the air and they're at least being discussed and I think that's contributing to this uncertainty about what Vatican II means, because people seem to be using it nowadays, um, yeah, as a pretext for advancing these kind of ideological agendas. Jonathan, this um, symposium that you put together was quite rich. I mean, we had uh, many 
interesting names. One, uh, Cardinal Pell, writing about Gaudium et Spes and the Synod on Synodality. Uh, we have uh, Tracy Rowland in a piece, When Vatican II Becomes Ancient History, and she remarks about, and, and kind of laments that young people just don't even want to know about Vatican II. They sort of reject the name, <laughs> you know, and that, mm. that's a danger. Um, uh, Stephen Bullivant uh, wrote about atheism and Vatican II, very interesting piece, something I had not thought about before. And then I find this very interesting, and I want to close on this thought. Um, John Cavadini, and he wrote something on unfulfilled legacies. And I think uh, here as we talk about this sort of unsettled moment, I think John has maybe an intercessor <laughs> um, in his piece mm. um, for our future. So describe a little bit what John wrote about. Yeah, well, exactly. John Cavadini, who is a, a theology professor at Notre Dame, he he points out, yeah, we like to debate um, kind of these questions of what's the right uh, hermeneutic to view the council and, you know, what do the documents really say? And and he points out, well, hey, yes, we need to do that. But there are also rich dimensions of what the council taught um, that when we've kind of been squabbling over the right way to look at it. We haven't really put them into play. And he um, he points out to two, he talks about the study of scripture, which Dave Verboom, which is the uh, the dogmatic constitute on constitution on divine uh, revelation, um, how it proposes how we can study scripture fruitfully with the historical critical method. So bringing in some of these insights of kind of more secular approaches to texts, but then also to treat them as truly inspired, to treat them as scripture. And he says there's a lot of work um, that continues to need to be done in that vein. That was also a concern of Benedict the Sixteenth. And then he talks about Mary. He talks about uh, the Blessed Mother, of course, there was discussion about whether there should be a document dedicated just to Mary and Marian theology, but the Council of Fathers chose to incorporate it into Lumen Gentium, the last chapter on the, the dogmatic constitution of the Church, ends with conversation about Mary. Um, so he says there's just an immense amount of fruit um, that can still be reaped by by contemplating um, you know, how the mystery of the Church cannot be thought of, really, or renewed or appreciated outside of the mystery of Mary. And really, I guess, Jeanette, the final thought on that point is, you know, we there's so much conversation in the church right now, you know, the synod on synodality or whatever it might be, where it really seems to just boil down to people fighting over um, power, right? Mm -hmm. Like people fighting over who gets to be in charge, who gets to decide what. And I think Dr. Cavadini's point is that if Mary is the image of the church, that's, that's as far away from the way sh we should be thinking about being church and living church. Mary, of course, who, you know, her fundamental response is is that yes to God, that fiat and that re receptivity. Um, so apart from that, we really uh, can't, uh, can't renew the church in the vision of Vatican II. Right. So Our Lady's Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. <laughs> so yes, indeed. John Jonathan, I'm going to invite our listeners to go to ncregister.com and look at the banner at the top. There is a, uh, a title, Vatican II at 60. Click on that and you'll find all of these commentaries that we've been talking about commemorating uh, the Second Vatican Council 60 years later. This is Register Radio on EWTN. Stay tuned. We'll be joined in just a moment by theologian Larry Chapp about continued coverage of the 60th anniversary of the Council. 
Bishop James Conley talks about the National Catholic Register. I've been reading the Register for over 40 years, and I can tell people with absolute conviction that it's the best periodical out there. They're honest, they're true, and they give a great perspective. It's important to be able to have a news source like the National Catholic Register where we can go to and make sense and decipher what's going on around us. It also engages the imagination. If you really want to be an informed Catholic, you got to read the National Catholic Register. To get six free issues, order online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. That's ncregister.com forward slash radio or 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. While you're waiting on your first issue, be sure to enjoy our content online. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully. Let's return to Register Radio on EWTN. Welcome back. I'm Jeanette Mello, Executive Director of the National Catholic Register, and I'm joined by Register contributor Larry Chapp, who wrote a commentary on the liturgy for our Vatican II Symposium. Larry received his doctorate in theology from Fordham University, and he spent 20 years teaching theology at the Sales University. He is author of many articles and books and is the founder and chief author of the blog Gaudium et Spes 22.com. He also, as I mentioned, writes for the register, and we were happy to have him as a part of our symposium. You know, Pope Francis this week on October 11th had a, had a mass at the Basilica, St. Peter's Basilica, commemorating the, the, uh, the 60th anniversary of the Council. And in that, he encouraged Catholics to leave behind criticism and anger and to live with faith and joy. And he, he kind of referred this uh, to the Council itself and some discussions that continue to take place that uh, he said are characterized by grumbling and criticizing. And he said, for those of us uh, who love the church, we need to do everything without murmuring. Well, Larry, I mean, we have a lot of murmuring <laughs> uh, in, in the church today um, yeah. related to Vatican II, but also related to the liturgy. Um, and this isn't new uh, to this day. Liturgy has been a lightning rod uh, ever since uh, the Second Vatican Council closed. You know, it really, it just became uh, a, a place, uh, unfortunately, of contention. And, and you wrote about this um, yes. uh, in your piece. So help us to understand what Vatican II actually set out to do related to the liturgy. Yeah, well, yeah, this is a church of murmurings today, and with all due respect to the Holy Father, uh, those murmurings are going to continue. Uh, the, the, the horses are out of that barn, fortunately <laughs> or unfortunately. But anyway, yeah, the, the Vatican Council, we have to remember that uh, before the Council, of course, was the uh, Latin Mass, the old Latin Mass. And uh, I support the continued presence of the Latin Mass in, in, in the contemporary Church. Uh, nevertheless, it has to be uh, kept in context and non-romanticized that the pre-Vatican II liturgy in most parishes was very often performed quite poorly, with priests just sort of mumbling their way, uh, mispronouncing the Latin, mixing it all together. Uh, many parishes did not have Gregorian chant choirs, that sort of thing. So you know, modern traditionalists go to these traditional Latin masses, and they see these 
great and glorious masses being done, that's all well and good, but that was not the norm. And many, many Catholics, I mean, it's kind of a cliche, but it was true, would just sit at Mass and pray their rosaries, do private devotions, that kind of thing. And so the Council, to answer your question, was seeking to redress that and to, uh, and to update the liturgy so that the faithful were not simply observers, but were active participants in the liturgy as such. And so it, it opened the door towards the uh, Mass in the common language of the people. It opened the door to the priest saying the prayers out loud. It opened the door to the congregation uh, responding. A lot of modern Catholics don't, who don't remember the old Mass uh, are not aware that, you know, the, the average layperson in the pew never said anything at Mass. There were no responses, really, of any kind. Uh, we just take it for granted now. So the, the Council wanted to achieve what they called active participation in the liturgy, and so it commissioned a reform of the liturgy. Now, whether or not the liturgy that we got is exactly mm-hmm. the liturgy that the Council Fathers had in mind is, is a separate question. I tend to think that the liturgy we got was not exactly what the Council Fathers had in mind, but nevertheless, that's, that's a debate for a different day. We're talking about Vatican II and what it really sought. It sought the reform of the old liturgy in, in continuity with that liturgy to increase the active participation of the laity. And you see some ways that it really got this. And, uh, and in your column, you describe two different liturgies that, uh, that you've participated in, in, in your life as a Catholic. Um, one long ago, it was 1977, and another uh, much more recently. Um, these, and you can describe them um, here, but these two liturgies, um, both, you write, have worthy fruits, even though they're very different. Sure. Uh, the, uh, the fact of the matter is, is that there's this common complaint out there today from some traditionalists uh, that the new liturgy is incapable of advancing a reverent, transcendent, mystical encounter at Mass. It's incapable of truly fostering the faith. A lot of heated rhetoric in that direction against the new liturgy. But in, I remember when I was at the Newman Center at the University of Nebraska in 1977, at the heyday of the liturgical renewal, I mean, it, it was a very orthodox parish, very orthodox priest diocese of Lincoln, very orthodox diocese. But the Mass was the new Mass, and it was guitars and St. Louis Jesuits and just about everything that we make fun of these days. Uh, and, and yet the, the place was brimming with, with faithful students on fire with the faith. In other words, that liturgy did sustain a profound evangelical faith life there in that parish. And that's true to this day across the globe. It is simply not true that the new liturgy cannot produce communities of faith. It does so all over places in Africa, Asia, Latin America, North America. It does. So I think far too often the new liturgy gets a bum rap uh, from traditionalists in, in that regard, and my own experience bears that up. And then a few weeks ago, I was in Baltimore giving a talk at the old cathedral, the Basilica of the, of the Assumption. And before Archbishop Laurie was there, before my talk, there was Vespers, were sung by a, with a beautiful scola in, in English. It was in English. It was the new prayers of the new breviary, but it was stunningly beautiful. Some of the most beautiful Vespers I've ever seen. Giving the lie, once again, to this idea that well, unless the prayers are in Latin, I guess God doesn't hear them, or, or it can't be beautiful, or it can't be transcendent. This is just patent nonsense. It's part of an ideological 
package of defamation against uh, the newer form of the liturgy that I, that I think is actually kind of regrettable. What I loved about your column and another column that you wrote uh, about uh, holiness and the universal call to holiness, um, which directly relates, of course, to the Vatican II's dogmatic constitution, Lumen Gentium, um, right. both of the, these columns that you wrote, one on the liturgy and one on holiness, really helps to present a way forward. I mean, we are at a a moment of murmuring. We're a moment where, if you want to say there are two sides, that both sides uh, need to to have the humility to recognize what the other side is um, is putting forward and and to come together in some way um, for a solution. How is uh, your second column there on holiness really an antidote to this moment? I think it's absolutely key to the Council's whole project. Right there in the middle of Lumen Gentium, Constitution of the Church, the Church is, is in a sense, attacking clericalization of holiness that it sort of set in, the idea that only the celibates who are in religious life, male or female, you know, nuns or priests, only they can truly achieve holiness. Uh, the rest of us, poor slobs in the laity, we just have to sort of muck around, you know, trying our best to follow the commandments, but it's going to be really hard for us to achieve holiness. And the Council sought to really go after that idea and to emphasize that all are called to holiness, of course, according to your vocation and station in life, uh, but still we are all called to holiness, and it is the antidote to the problems of today, because really, truly, what, one of the things that happened after the Council that in many ways derailed this message of the call to holiness, was this attempt to clericalize uh, the laity (laughs) Uh, in terms of, you know, tons and tons of Eucharistic ministers, you know, lay lectors. And I'm not necessarily against those things, but the point is that's not what the main conciliar focus was in terms of getting the laity more involved in the Church. It was more about reminding the laity that the Sermon on the Mount is not meant for the elect, not meant for the perfect. Uh, it is meant for every single human being. And if we started as a laity, what we need, as Dorothy Day said, is a revolution of the heart in the laity. We could ignite, as her co-worker uh, Peter Morin said, the dynamite of the Church, if the laity were to rise up and really go through, I guess what we'd call in the old days, a kind of revival. What we need is a, is a, we need a, a laity revival, or what I sometimes say, we need a discalced laity, you know, like the religious orders that reformed, that, oh, now we're discoused, meaning we don't wear shoes as a sign of our poverty. We, we need a kind of discoused laity in, in the sense of a more intentional and rigorous form of life and living in the Church. Larry, I, I couldn't agree with you more, and your piece titled, what does, universal, the, what does the Universal Call to Holiness Look Like Today, actually answers that question with, with something very powerful. It, it talks about parents living holiness in the home and how we pass on that faith, that example of faith, to our children. I encourage all of our listeners to go to ncregister.com, look for Vatican II at 60, and you can find all of these commentaries that we've been talking about on this show. Remember, there's a lot more new news analysis and commentary at the National Catholic Register online at ncregister.com. Thanks for joining us on Register Radio here on EWTN. Uh, for my producer, Jeff Burson, and for myself, Jeanette Mello, I pray that you will have a great week and that God bless you.